Dr. Molly Millwood is a clinical psychologist with advanced specialized training in marital therapy and intimate relationships. After completing a postdoctoral clinical fellowship at Stanford University, she now teaches psychology at St. Michael's College in Vermont. She's also the author of the recent book, To Have and to Hold, which explores the modern dilemma between motherhood and marriage. In our interview, Molly and I talk about the interplay between the two and the challenges that often arise once couples start having children. We'll kick it off with the first question, which is, as a clinical psychologist, you're a professor at St. Michael's College in Vermont, wife, mother of two. You wrote this book in part because it explains in the text that when you were pregnant with your first son, you noticed that there really weren't any books out there that explored the themes of motherhood and marriage. Why do you think it's so important to have a dialogue about the complexities between balancing being a mom and a wife? Well, I think parenthood places incredible strain on a marriage. And, you know, that in some ways I'm stating the obvious, but I think um, people are also less aware of that than they are of the fact that parenting places a strain on the individual. You know, so I think people know, know to expect that when you become a mother, you will go through a tough time or, you know, that it will be a vulnerable time. But I don't think there's as much awareness as there needs to be about the ways in which parenthood is inherently destabilizing for the marriage or oh. or the relationship. And I'll just say that I'll, I'll probably use the word marriage a lot, but whenever I do, I want to be inclusive and, you know, sure. could could also be a committed relationship. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 So, no. so if you, yeah, I, you know, and again, there are many different reasons that parenthood places that strain on a marriage, but I think at the most fundamental level, if you think about what couples have to do when they have their first baby, it's that they have to shift their focus from each other to a third human being. So, you know, up until that point, your entire relationship is predicated on um, this ability. Yeah, the two of you, you're a dyad and you have this Mm -hmm. ability to uh, uh, pay attention to each other and sort of nurture the relationship by doing that. But suddenly you have a brand new human being who requires enormous amounts of your time and attention. And there's just no no way around the fact that that's going to take, you know, the couple away from being able to attend to each other as much as they were before. For sure. And especially in those first five years, it seems like of the, of the child's life when those formative years are so critical in, in a child's young young development, it seems like there is a strain that's put on the relationship or the marriage. Right, right. And yeah, the sheer amount of time that that children take up when they're young, you know, obviously that gets better and that gets easier. But but yes, in those early years, I think, you know, when we go through a trying time, ideally our relationship or our marriage is Mm -hmm. a buffer against all of the stress or it's a, you know, it's a bedrock of support. It's a safe haven. But in the transition to parenthood, the marriage is is destabilized. And that is a big part of why I think a typical new mother struggles so much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring light to in my book is that it's not just women who have um, postpartum depression or, you know, Mm -hmm. some full-blown sort of diagnosable disorder. It's not just those women who are suffering when they become mothers. It's all women. 
And my big point is that a major reason for that struggle is that the relationship itself or the marriage itself has, has changed so much Mm -hmm. and we can't rely on it as most of the time, you know, we can't rely on it as that bedrock of support because it too, you know, just like we are sort of (laughs) discombobulated by, by motherhood. um, The marriage also has been so, so changed that we no longer standing on that same sort of solid ground that we hopefully were before we had a baby. For sure. I wonder, and I don't know if statistically this is true, but in my mind, I always thought that if a couple is together for longer before they have a child, to kind of create and develop that foundation that then once they bring a child into the world, the relationship is less vulnerable. Do you know, do you know of any studies around that or, or. So I don't think that there's, I don't think there's any evidence that the length of time that you spend Mm -hmm. together is, is a protective factor, but I think the quality of the relationship is so, so the one way of thinking about it is that the, the seeds of, of relationship, um, distress or, or struggle are, are sown before the baby is ever born. You know, mm-hmm. so couples couples enter into parenthood with um, particular vulnerabilities or or weaknesses. I guess we could call them. Right. Um, and having a baby is going to make those far more pronounced. Um, but the flip side of that is even really solid couples are likely to struggle when they have mm-hmm. a baby. So. Right. So, you know, there are statistics showing, and I, I talk about these in the book, there are statistics showing that you, you could think about having a child as being a risk factor for divorce because right. couples do become less satisfied once they have a baby. But but I think, you know, as far as your question, I think it's you're, you're on to something when you say that if a couple has a more solid foundation before mm-hmm. they become parents, they're less vulnerable to those struggles. But I don't think it's right. so much how... Not so much how long they've been together. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. You write in the introduction of your book, too often personal contentment and relationship harmony are pitted against each other as if we must sacrifice one in order to achieve the other. What if we could instead occupy a mental space in which there is room for all our loving, nurturing feelings toward our children and our partners and room for all our other less socially acceptable feelings too, which I think is just a really powerful statement. How can someone, yeah, how can someone go about making the first step to allowing sort of all of these feelings to go coexist without guilt? I think that that's a big challenge for people. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, I think first people just need to emerge from the isolation that breeds that kind of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so you're asking how can people sort of embrace and have all of these mixed feelings without the guilt that's associated with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I would argue maybe it's shame more so than guilt. That's one of those distinctions that, you know, just because I'm a psychologist, I sort Mm -hmm. of love to look at these, you know, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so shame, you know, I think of that distinction as being that shame is about being, whereas guilt is about doing. So we feel guilty if we've done something that we don't think is right. But shame is more like, what kind of person am I to feel the way I feel about being a mother or to feel the way I feel within my marriage or toward my partner? Um, And shame is is rooted in oftentimes in isolation and secrecy. So if we're not talking about what it is that we feel, um, if we're not hearing other people give voice to their feelings, that if they only would, we would see ourselves reflected in other people, 
Right. So if none of that is happening and there's all this sort of secrecy around what it is that we feel in the realm of motherhood, um, right. all of those mixed emotions, then, then we're going to be stuck in shame. So I really think that the first step is about um, emerging from the isolation and giving voice, which, and that can take a lot of different forms, you know, so, right. so talking openly, talking more openly and honestly within um, your close relationships, whether that's, you know, with your friend, with partner, um, reading books like the one I wrote in right. which, you know, you can see, you can see yourself reflected in the words on the page and you realize, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, so just increasing your own awareness of what is that full range of emotions that exist for everyone in, in this, you know, experience of parenthood or the realm of parenthood. And maybe also I would add, um, I guess I feel inclined to talk about the role of social media here because I I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that in many ways um, it has done wonders for having more honest, open conversation about the hardships of uh, Mm -hmm. motherhood. And I feel, you know, I genuinely feel um, thankful for that. And I see a lot of new mothers, finding comfort in, um, you know, particular sort of pages and movements online that are, that are designed to give voice to all of what's difficult about motherhood and just to sort of be real about it. Um, But on the other hand, I think that there is that, you know, we all know about the tendency uh, to, to portray ourselves on social media in this very airbrushed censored way. Mm -hmm. So, so I think as far as your question of, you know, the take, what, what are some steps that people can take to, to right. kind of embrace all of these emotions, I would say stop following pages that make mm-hmm. you feel bad. For sure. <laughs> you know, great first step. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the last thing, again, I mean, certainly we could keep talking about this, but just one more thing comes to mind in terms of mm-hmm. how can people, how can people begin to to um, honor and allow all of these different emotions. I like to advocate for a a really simple but powerful shift in language, which Mm -hmm. is to replace the word but with the word and. Mm, So true. Yes. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. so if, if you're feeling seemingly contradictory feelings, like, you know, in the book, I talk about a mother who is thinking to herself, um, mm-hmm. I love my baby so much, um, but I want time away from my right. baby or, or even, you know, I love my partner so much or my partner's such a good father, but mm-hmm. he hasn't been nearly as affected by parenthood as I have. So if you, if you're thinking along those lines with the, but mm-hmm. in between those two, <laughs> you know, seemingly opposing feelings, right. It's really hard to kind of allow both of them to exist. The human mind wants to land on one side or the other. Well, which is it? These don't seem to go together. So I have to cancel one out in order to make room for the other. But right. if you shift the language to and, you know, like, right. I, I love my new baby more than anything. And, and I'm she, exhausted. Yes. And yeah. she depletes me. Like, I, you know, I've never known this kind of fatigue before. Or, or I love my husband and 
he drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, or I love my husband and he's really letting me down in the realm of parenthood. I feel like I'm doing way more than my fair share. So, so that is such a small change in language, but I feel, and hopefully, you know, you can, yeah, I can feel it too. That it's like, yeah, like it just sort of makes room for all of those feelings. Like, okay, these can all be here at one time. I don't have to make a decision. I don't have to pretend one of them isn't true. Exactly. It's like these feelings can, it's a more holistic approach. It's something too that, but versus, and I have an amazing therapist and that's a conversation we have is when I'm, talking about something that I'm grappling with, she'll remind me it's, 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 and it's, it is, though these things can be all together as one soup of seemingly like contradictory feelings, but they, they're all together. And so it does, the language is really powerful in how we articulate our feelings in that way. Yeah. Even if it does seem contradictory in our minds, it's really, it, it is that first step to kind of getting or realizing that shame that we're experiencing around. Right. Them. Right. And um, I love that you're, I love that you're using the metaphor of soup. I do that a lot. Yeah. Isn't that great? I know, <laughs> all these I know. things That's are something in the I pot. From in her too. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, like, it's all together. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, and, and we're talking both as women right now, we're, we're sort of biological, not sort of, we are biologically wired to have children. And yet you make a compelling point that there are multitudes of studies indicating that marital happiness takes a hit, like you said before, when spouses evolve from parents into co-parents, that conflict rises sharply and that marital satisfaction levels are significantly lower than those in childless couples, especially among women. Um, And you talk about the importance of partners staying close as the critical factor in supporting these challenges during this particularly vulnerable period, especially in the early stages of parenting. What in your mind is staying close? What does that look and feel like to you? Mm, that's Yeah, that's such a great question. I think that mostly what I'm talking about when I say it's so important for couples to stay close during this storm um, mm. of, of parenthood is I'm talking about being a witness to each other's emotional mm. states. Mm. So, you know, a lot of couples, develop an awareness early on of the fact that they lack time for each other and that, you know, their relationship sort of feels like it's on the back burner. And then they express feeling stuck, like, you know, there aren't enough hours in the day or we're so tired. How can we possibly make time for each other? And I think that is, I mean, there's a certain stuckness that comes with that because you you obviously can't produce more hours in the day or you can't deny or somehow pretend that you aren't incredibly exhausted and therefore, you know, you can engage in some stimulating conversation with your partner at the end of the day or or sex. You know, that's another thing where Mm -hmm. couples talk about how can we possibly, you know, have the time or the energy to have sex because obviously that's a way of being close. So. So what I think is so important for couples to realize is that staying close isn't necessarily about carving out additional time that doesn't Mm -hmm. exist or, you know, finding energy that doesn't exist so that you can Mm -hmm. go out on a date together or finding financial resources to pay for a babysitter so that you can go out on a date. I think it's really about having an orientation toward each other, having mm-hmm. a sort of stance where you want to know mm-hmm. what it is that the other is feeling right? Um, and experiencing 
like leaning right. into them. Well, I was going to yeah. say leaning into them versus the inclination to maybe pulling away when you're stressed and tired. And exactly, um, yeah, yeah. And just small. I, I mean, I think small gestures that say to your partner, "I know what's going on for you right mm-hmm. now," or sure. even even I see you. So I was working with a, a a couple recently who are you know in the thick of it with two small children and she the wife was talking about how when she's in when she's in that overwhelmed state of you know mm-hmm. cooking dinner dinner and the baby is crying and the toddler needs a diaper and right. that really what she wants most from her husband is to is for him to sort of stop in his tracks and right. say to her I see you oh my god totally that's the most powerful thing in any kind of conflict or relationship you want to be seen by your partner. Exactly. You want to be seen and you, and there doesn't have to be a fix or a solution. Right. Oh, totally. So I think oftentimes, you know, husbands are saying, well, I'm trying to help and, or, you know, like, I don't know what you need me to do. Just tell me and I'll do it. And I, and I, and sure that can, that can go a long way to have that instrumental hands-on help. But I think so often women feel like they're, they're sort of drowning Mm-hmm. And they just want their partner to say, I see you. I see mm-hmm. you over there barely right. hanging on and yeah. let me come close and just sort of put my arms around you to let you know that I, that I haven't lost sight of you. Right, right. Um, oh, for and sure. And so that that's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that I, when I say, you know, being a witness to each other's emotional mm-hmm. states, you know, that that doesn't require additional time or energy. Mm-hmm. It just requires a mentality. Right. And you're right that when, you know, when couples are going through this incredibly difficult um, transition and have little ones, um, it, you know, it can feel as if the best thing to do is to sort of pull away under all that stress, you know. Right. <clears throat> that, or or even forward or, you know. Right. Or tomorrow, you know, tomorrow will be a better day. Tomorrow we'll um, make sure. time for that conversation or tomorrow I'll feel like having sex, you know, so, mm-hmm. so not um, diluting yourself into thinking that the next day or the next week or the next month is going to be better. And then you'll be able to take the relationship off the back burner, but right. instead sort of adapting to like, what is actually possible for us right now? We're in this, you know, extremely challenging time together. We don't have a lot of resources for each other, but we can at least have moments of eye contact and moments mm-hmm. where we say to each other, either verbally or just with our eyes, I still see you and mm-hmm. I'm right here. Mm-hmm. And I think to, to kind of expand that or pull the lens away from just the parenting, I think that skill is really powerful in any kind of relationship with or without children. You know, when there's some kind of crisis or challenge or emotional struggle that's happening, to acknowledge seeing each other in in that time is really the most powerful thing to be understood and heard and seen. Well, Um, that's exactly right. And there is um, no question that that, I would say that skill of, it's mm-hmm. the skill of attunement, you know, the ability sure. to, to see your partner and to, and to communicate to your partner mm-hmm. that you see and that you understand. That is important all the time in any relationship. So, you know, really has nothing to do with, <laughs> nothing, to, right. nothing specific about having um, children. And it's also but, why, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned um, having an amazing therapist. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I just would add that that, fundamental need to feel seen mm-hmm. and understood is why good therapy is so powerful. Mm-hmm. So true. 
because people, you know, people have this sort of misconception that, you know, therapists have all the answers or they'll tell you mm-hmm. what to do and give you advice. But actually, the best yeah. therapists are um, holding up a mirror to their clients. They're saying, I see you. Can you see yourself? Right. Now, in that regard, I'm I'm a huge proponent of therapy, have been for a long time. What are your thoughts, and we're going a little bit off script here, but what are your thoughts about couples therapy? I know some people feel that, oh, if you're, you know, couples therapy is like the first step before divorce or the first step, you know, the realization that there's a problem that might not be fixable. What is your take on couples therapy? I can imagine. I feel like I know the answer, but I'm curious (laughs) how to say about that. Well, well, I... I am a practicing couples therapist, so I'll, right. you know, I, clearly I have my biases about sure. it. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, in no way do I look at it as sort of a last-ditch effort. Um, the the unfortunate reality is that a lot of couples do wait until, mm-hmm. I don't want to say not until it's too late, but, but they wait a long time because there's mm-hmm. still such stigma uh, attached to, to therapy, sure. and particularly, to, I would argue, to, to couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think sometimes when couples come in, there is really so much water under the bridge that it can it can feel daunting, and it mm-hmm. you know can often feel like there isn't a lot of hope. Um, but I think that you know in my sort of fantasy universe, everybody would have access to couples yeah. therapy, and everybody mm-hmm. would recognize that marriage mm-hmm. or long term relationships mm-hmm. um, is inherently challenging. I mean, For we sure. you know part of the human mm-hmm. condition is to have this tension between wanting to connect and mm-hmm. rely on other people right. and wanting to be separate and independent. And so, you know, in, it's not like that tension suddenly disappears because you've chosen to be committed to someone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I think there are so many challenges that come with the terrain of couplehood that mm-hmm. it's impossible to, to experience marriage in a positive way at all times. Sure. And, and a lot of couples, I think when they encounter difficulties, they think that it means they're not compatible or that, you know, mm-hmm. something's really terribly wrong. But if they were able to just look at it more like, well, we're hitting a rough patch and we just need a tune up, you know, we just sure. need to go, go in in the same way that we would take our car in because something's not working right with our car. Exactly. I would love it if people saw it that way, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's not really the prevailing attitude toward couples. Right, therapy. right. Well, you make a really good point about it oftentimes being too late, whereas if you're more yeah. proactive about therapy in the beginning or early on or when you first realize a little seed of, of a challenge between the two of you, I think that that's, that's a really good point to, to, as with everything, be as proactive as you can to avoid an issue or a bigger issue down the road. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, you provide an expert of your journal in your book about the shift that happened to you after having your first son, where you say motherhood has transformed me from an extremely mallow, even keeled person to a tense and high strung person with mood fluctuations so pronounced that my husband has asked what I've done with his wife and when she's coming back. Seven seven and a half months into motherhood, I sometimes don't even recognize myself. I'm filled with a fear that something about me, something that previously defined who I am and served me quite well, is different now that I'm a mom. So in exploring this freedom to feel, how did you ultimately get to a point where you, where your acceptance of those challenges and sort of the range of emotions allowed you to come to peace with your new life as a mm-hmm. mother and as a woman? So 
I will answer that question, but I first just mm-hmm. want to share that as I listen to you reading that excerpt from my journal, and I think my son at the time was maybe like seven months old or something, mm-hmm. I, you know, part of me is sort of cringing hearing mm-hmm. that. Um, mostly I just feel sad because what yeah. I hear reflected in the journal entry is this feeling I had at the time that I wasn't the same person anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm using yeah. this extreme, um, extreme language. Like first right. I was this way and now I'm this way. And that's, right. uh, I obviously have a different vantage point now, many years sure. later. And I, and I understand that I didn't become a completely different person, but I think at the time it felt to me that I did. And it felt to yeah. me that I had lost parts of myself or aspects of my identity that I was never going to get back again. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. Because it's really interesting actually to sort of reflect right. on how just right. the way that I worded things and what my perspective was, sure. was at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So your question I know is about, um, you know, how did I, how did I go about, um, embracing kind of or sort embracing accepting, it. accepting, embracing sort of like we talked about earlier, the, the, the and versus the but coming to realization that you like all of these can be together. Yeah. all of these emotions and then come to peace with kind of not the, the completely new version of you, but the new, the newer life, you know, or yeah. this new chapter in your life. Yeah. It, and sort of the change, the changes in me, not mm-hmm. that I was a totally different person, but that right. I had um, begun encountering parts of myself that I was not expecting to encounter. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much, you know, that's mm-hmm. the way I've, I've come to talk about, Motherhood is sort of this metamorphosis where where mm. we where we start experiencing maybe more intense emotions or emotions that we infrequently felt before, and mm. that we discover parts of ourselves that we would not have otherwise discovered. I feel like that's an, um, yeah, a really wow. sort of liberating way to look at it. Yeah, as to, it's just like a loss that. or it's a total change in who you are. Right. Um, so I also am a big fan of therapy, and so mm-hmm. one answer to your question of mm-hmm. how did I how did I do this is that I had a wonderful therapist who yeah. um, I feel played a really crucial role. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, in in helping me normalize my emotions, so all mm-hmm. of what I was feeling um, when I could sort of see my emotions through this different lens that she was providing for me, which mm-hmm. was a very validating lens, then um, I could feel more comfortable with them. And mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, therapy has helped me understand myself. Right. I think sometimes people have the impression that because I'm a psychologist, I already had all of this self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And that's simply not true. You know, we have mm-hmm. blind blind spots just like everybody else, mm-hmm. and we can learn about theories and concepts and apply them mm. really well to other people. But um, I think my process of um, seeking out therapy when I was a fairly new mom and then staying with that mm-hmm. um, for in a, you know, prolonged way. Um, I don't, I don't think that I would be the same without that. I feel like that's mm-hmm. been just so incredibly important for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, I think I talk in the book about how um, my husband was the one sort of holding that mirror up to me early mm-hmm. on and mm-hmm. saying, you know, what is going on with you? Um, and at the time, I really resented him for that because that mm-hmm. didn't feel good. And I wanted to keep sort of existing in this denial <laughs> 
um, mm. that it really, I wasn't really that different or whatever this was, it was soon going to go away. Mm. Um, so I think another, another answer to your question is that I, I stopped denying the changes that were occurring in me in order to make room for them so that then I could sort of look at them and make sense of them and integrate yeah. them into my, mm. into my um, sort of self mm. image. And, right. and, you know, I, I'll add that even though I just said that it's not like being a psychologist, um, mm-hmm. you know, brought me automatically all of this stuff. I will say that I think I had the benefit of being trained in concepts and teaching mm-hmm. about concepts that that eventually I could um, um, endorse and really kind of internalize for myself. So mm-hmm. um, an example of that is just what does it mean to be psychologically healthy? And I knew right. from an intellectual standpoint, because of my training as a psychologist, sure. that that being being psychologically healthy is not the absence of negative emotions. It's mm. actually the ability to mm-hmm. feel right. all of the human, all of the emotion that our human existence right. entails and allow those emotions to move through you. Sure. So I knew that. Um, mm. And I want, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I wanted other people to have access to those concepts that had really so much value for me once I was able to sort of, uh, you know, uh, adopt them to my own life and, and, and apply them particularly to motherhood where I was struggling mm-hmm. so much. For sure. um, and, and I'll add that, you know, accepting the range of emotions that comes with being a human being doesn't necessarily equate with being at peace. Um, the emotions are intense and unsettling and unpleasant right. oftentimes. Um, but I think if we can let go of the, the resisting and mm-hmm. the shame, the resisting of those emotions or the shaming of ourselves for having the emotions, then they right. run their course. That's just what feelings do, oh my God. you know, where it's <laughs> like, yeah, we're, yeah. Once you allow them. And I think Tara, I am sure you're familiar, familiar with Tara Brock, radical acceptance. Yeah. It's like, like yeah. acceptance of your feelings and your emotions and really letting them flow through you versus resisting them because it's the resistance that makes them feel bigger and harder to deal with and to manage. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let's see. The next next thing I kind of wanted to ask you was about happiness, which is another emotion that we all want to feel all the time, but it's not possible. <laughs> right. um, but you talk about how people are most happy when they're they're most in the present, which we, you know, studies show that. And that mm-hmm. couples with higher frequencies of sex, better emotional communication, better communication in general, are more satisfied in their relationships. Um, you talk, too, about the tendency of nexting and of fast-forwarding time when parenting babies and young children. What are ways that parents and couples can manage that tendency of nexting and making time for each other in an effort to preserve and to kind of protect that happiness in the now? Yeah. Yeah, um, and just to reiterate, I think what's so important about this line of research is that it shows such a clear connection between um, mindfulness and Mm -hmm. happiness or well-being. So, you know, there's a huge mindfulness bandwagon, um, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful because the research actually backs it up and says that we can't, and this is sort of intuitive also, we can't be happy 
yesterday or tomorrow. We can only be happy right now. You know, mm. any any emotion can only be experienced in, in the present. Right. Um, mm. But also it's sort of an innate human tendency to be anticipating the next moment. We are, yeah. That's yeah. another thing we're hardwired to do because we need right. to be able to anticipate if there's danger around the mm-hmm. corner. Exactly. Um, so it's this sort of battle between what it is that we're sort of biologically positioned to do and what we are told from the research would be good for us and, and make us happier, um, which is to stay fully present. So the argument that I make in the book is that that is it's hard for all of us all the time, but it's especially hard in the realm of parenthood, mm. um, hard to stay present because, you know, we, we either feeling like time is going so fast and we can't mm-hmm. stay on top of everything and can't keep up or can't catch up. Right. Or we feel like time um, has slowed or is, or even that we are sort of suspended in time and we're watching mm-hmm. the, the minutes and the hours tick by and feeling maybe bored um, right. or waiting mm-hmm. until we can put the baby down and go do something else. And so there's this whole changed relationship with time that happens mm-hmm. when you enter into mm-hmm. parenthood. And I think that's, you know, one of the big sort of destabilizing aspects of it that, right. that people talk about. Um, so in terms of um, couplehood and that you were citing the research that, you know, couple that, that we are happiest mm-hmm. when we're engaging um, in um, activities that require a great deal of mindfulness or at least a mm-hmm. sort of pull and for being that. In the present. Yeah. Yeah. And I think statistically, I was reading somewhere recently, we're most in the present. Well, this is, it was probably your book, but I'm feeling like I, I was reading something else. Oh, I think it was a little bit, some of Michael Pollan's research, mm-hmm. um, how to change your mind about how the state of, um, when we're in a state of being sexually connected to someone is like one of the the places that we're Obviously, his book is on mushrooms, but right. <laughs> being there, maybe it was a podcast or something, but it was basically the point being that being in the present is achieved by sex, sometimes people doing mushrooms and things like that. But I know I'm trying to make a point here <laughs> with, respect to, with, with respect to parenthood, but it is the happiness. So it's like how to do how to achieve that. I, when when you I, say I when think, you're like destabilized, you know, but right, ahead, right, and where time where time is so time is so short, um, mm-hmm. and I I mean I don't know, but maybe the point that you were getting to is yeah. that there are certain some of the activities that allow for yes. pull for the most mindfulness are actually things we do in couplehood, like sex, exactly. Um, or, yeah. you know, being really engrossed in, in conversation, communicating right. with another human being, you know, that that's sure. another time that we tend to be highly present. And so, you want to be present. And and so right. I think it's like, it's hard to get to that point of not being distracted, especially in parenthood, I would imagine. Right? It, it, yes, exactly. I mean, especially yeah. in parenthood. I mean, it's right. constant, constant distraction. Mm-hmm. So I just would say that, again, you know, making time is not about... Like like making time for each mm-hmm. other in order to sort of feel more present and feel more connected is not about finding more hours in the day or or denying that profound exhaustion that makes you uninterested in sex. I think it is about learning to stay in the present and noticing what the current moment offers. So mm-hmm. so earlier, I mean, I guess I'm just repeating myself, but earlier I was saying um, 
couples often make the mistake of saying to themselves, well, you know, yes, we haven't been able to have sit down and have dinner together, or we haven't been able to have a conversation in weeks or months, or, you know, we haven't had sex in several months or whatever it is that when you have a new baby, um, couples are making the mistake of thinking that will change soon enough or pretty soon, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, right. I'll have the energy or the wherewithal or the interest to make these things happen. But I think what would be much better is to instead work with what is possible in the moment. So, mm-hmm. so that's what I mean by noticing what the current moment offers. Um, so it may be the total chaos of the evening routine with dinner and bath time and putting the baby to sleep and all of that. But within that chaos, there is an opportunity for a quick moment of eye contact um, with your partner or a quick kiss. Mm -hmm. Um, So, or savoring together, you know, one of the, one of the great joys of parenthood is to be able to um, notice and delight in something that your baby is doing or your child, but also, know that you're sharing, that somebody else is seeing that too. Um, So, you know, I think for couples, one of their greatest sources of joy in parenthood is to sort of be together watching some hilarious thing that their baby is doing or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, having some really um, lovely sort of emotionally present conversation with their child together. So, so those are all examples of, um, savoring the moment or, or being awake to whatever the moment has to offer, even if it's in the midst of all of the usual chaos and strain and hardship and exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. And what I like about that too, is it's so, it requires some awareness, but it's so doable. Exactly. You know, it's kind of training yourself to stop in those moments and recognize and pause and be there together. Um, but it really is very achievable to, to be able to get to that point of recognizing right. those little moments of bliss together. As right. Right. Yeah. Because the, the constriction of time and energy is so real. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I would never want to try to convince couples who have recently become parents. I would never want to convince them otherwise or try to convince them like, what, what do you mean you don't have time? Like they, they really don't have right. spare time or energy Mm-hmm. Um, but they do have the capacity to modify their mentality or their mindset. And, right. and that is where um, the potential lies, the potential for change, yeah. even, even when you can't change the sort of logistics of, of daily life and how grueling it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so emotional attunement was something you mentioned earlier. And I think that that's, that's another sort of um, concept I've learned more in therapy. I think it's really powerful. Um, or, or the term for what it means. Um, but it's a topic you, you explore in your book, and it's something that is really powerful in how we connect and relate to other people. Um, and you write in, in your book, we should, we should pay close attention to the human being with whom we've chosen to share a lifetime. We should stay engaged in a call-and-response kind of dance, aware of the ways our partner reaches out to us and willing most of the time to extend a metaphorical hand in response. What are some practical ways? And, and we touched upon it just earlier in this concept of, of you know, the moments that sharing together as parents, but what are some practical ways that spouses can attune to each other in an effective mm-hmm. way? Well, I think that 
spouses need to learn to read each other's emotional signals, first mm-hmm. of all, mm-hmm. um, because everybody has a different way of um, expressing emotion. I mean, there are right. some sort of universal facial expressions that go with certain emotions, but we also learn early on how to mask what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn early on which emotions are, you know, allowed to be expressed freely and which ones mm-hmm. should be hidden or denied. And so when you enter into couplehood, you you may have a great deal of comfort, let's say, with anger, and you express mm-hmm. it freely, but your partner has an entirely different emotional history mm-hmm. and um, may have great difficulties showing anger or even claiming right. anger internally. Mm-hmm. So you you can be a very emotionally intelligent person entering into couplehood, but that doesn't mean that you know how your partner operates emotionally. Yeah, that's a really good So, point. Yeah, so just, you know, first of all, learning to read each other's emotional signals and having conversations. Like what, you mm-hmm. know, when you get this look on your face, I'm inclined to think that you're angry, but maybe it's something else. And right. and then the partner has a chance to say, no, I wasn't angry at all. I think that's what I look like when I'm scared or, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Um, so, so John, I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so in your mind, is it asking questions and, and kind of having a dialogue around understanding the other person? I mean, to me, yes. that, it's a, that's how yeah, I would approach it. But Yes, that yeah. is. And, you know, what's so interesting to me is how many assumptions get made all the oh, time in couplehood. Sure. <laughs> you know, maybe assumptions get made all the time in life in general. But, right. but certainly, you know, so often when I'm working with couples, I hear one person saying, well, you know, she said this or did that, and I just assumed it meant X, Y, and Z. And there's so rarely a sort of like, wait a second, when you looked at me that way just now, I felt like maybe you were trying to tell me, um, you know, that you didn't want me around. Is that Mm -hmm. what you were trying to tell me? Mm -hmm. And then the other one can say, yeah, I, you know, mm-hmm. I was trying to give you that signal. I wanted my space. Or the other one could say, oh, wow, that's not at all where I was coming right. from. Right. Um, but there's so rarely is that kind of dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. So, th- yes, that's the kind of thing I'm advocating mm-hmm. for is for mm-hmm. there to be questions and sort of be right. peel, peel back that outer layer and say, right. here's what here's what I'm seeing. But tell me if something different is going on for you internally. Yeah, um, for sure. And that's a way of making someone else feel heard and understood. You know, yes. they're grappling with some challenging thing that they don't know how to express to you. Yeah. Having your partner come to you and say, I'm seeing this. Is this what's happening? It's a very, like, non-judgmental way that doesn't doesn't feel like it's, com- like, rooted in conflict. It's that's just right. Very right. Lovely. It's more it's rooted in um, like a genuine curiosity where you mm-hmm. want to know exactly. what's going on for the other. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, I just was going to mention, you know, some of the research that's been done mm-hmm. by John Gottman, who you're probably familiar oh, right. with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty major um, yeah. relationship researcher. So mm-hmm. he talks about um, bids for connection and how mm-hmm. in um in couplehood, you need to not only learn to read each other's emotional signals, but you need to learn what it is that your partner does to mm. make a bid for closeness or connection. Right. Um, because, again, that language can be different from person to person. Mm-hmm. So um, the ability to know that your partner is making a bid is so important. 
And then obviously how you respond to that bid is also important. So Gottman talks about how you have, if your partner makes a bid for connection and you register that bid, you have some choices. You can either turn towards the bid, which is the ideal response, like somehow say, you know, I see you making this bid and I want to come to you. I want to be closer mm-hmm. to you. I want to be responsive. Right. Or you can ignore it, which he calls turning away. Um, mm-hmm. You can sort of pretend that you don't see it. Or mm-hmm. you can do, I think, the worst thing of all, which is what he calls turning against, which is to sort of say or do something mean or chastising mm-hmm. that actually punishes the other person for reaching mm-hmm. out. Wow. Um, yeah. So. I, I'm being very practical, but I think you asked mm-hmm. your, your question. Yeah, you know, what are some practical ways for yeah, yeah for, for couples to attune to each other? Yeah, yeah, realistic ways that people can. Yeah, I like I like the John Gottman kind of three, three pronged. Well, obviously you want to be using the turning into, but three ways that people respond to these emotional bids. Yeah, um, yeah. Did you have any others you wanted to add? Um. I think that we covered them because I was, I yeah. guess the only other thing that I would uh, sort of um, terminology that I would use is mm-hmm. taking, maybe it's a little silly, but taking each other's emotional temperature where, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, you are just by habit, you are looking to see how does your partner seem to be doing emotionally. And you're not doing that out of fear, like, uh oh, mm-hmm. is something wrong here? Um, mm-hmm. But out of genuine interest, like, I just want to know, how are you doing? Yeah, and right. and if you can't tell, this is what we already sort of touched upon, but if you can't tell or if you think mm-hmm. maybe you're interpreting your partner's emotional state wrongly, then ask. Exactly. Um, yeah. You look sad. Are you sad? Right. You know? Yeah. And I think, too, in relationships as a whole, it's, it's so easy to assume based on our own experience or our how we respond to things to assume that someone else is responding the way that we would respond. And right. We get that wrong all the time, all the you time, know, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And to assume, I think it's just the, the first step toward, you know, creating conflict or there being a, an elephant in the room that, that can, doesn't, shouldn't, shouldn't be ignored. And it really is just starting out with that curiosity with a question, um, that in my relationship experience has been the most powerful. It's just like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Yeah. You know, and it's just a very simple way to just gauge how someone, where someone is at. Um, right, and genuinely wanting to know the yeah, answer as opposed exactly. to sort of bracing yourself or thinking, uh, you know, right. what terrible thing am I going to hear and how is how sure. is my partner's emotional state my fault? Exactly. Um, those so, kinds of things make us just want to steer clear or, right. or pull away or yeah. get defensive. Yeah. yeah. And I think in that in that sense, it's it's creating an environment where you both have that genuine curiosity about the other person's emotional state. Not even in light of a potential crisis or something big that's happening, but right. just in general, like how yeah, it's a general like, practice. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, this was a really great conversation, Molly. I really enjoyed this this chat. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to add or share? Um, yeah, I think that I would, if it's all right, I just would like yeah. to speak for a moment to um, some of the gendered experiences mm. that occur mm-hmm. in, in parenthood. So this would be, sure. you know, something um, specific to heterosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, you know, I think a lot of what we have been talking about is universal for all mm-hmm. all types of relationships, sure. and particularly that the way we started when I talked about that fundamental shift that occurs right. when you have a baby from focusing on each other to focusing on a third person mm-hmm. that, you know, all of that obviously applies um, regardless of whether it's a same sex relationship or heterosexual. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I um, feel is so important for couples to understand is that the, that women and men experience the transition to parenthood in fundamentally different ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, I mean, this is another point where, you know, maybe I'm stating the obvious. I think everybody knows in some way that the, the strain of parenthood is, is felt more by the mother than it is mm-hmm. by the father. Um, but that in itself is a major piece of the mm-hmm. puzzle as far mm-hmm. as why is it that couples struggle so much in the transition sure. to parenthood? Why yeah. is this such a vulnerable time for the couple? It's because even with really supportive hands-on fathers, yeah. there's still a disparity that can breed resentment yeah. in the relationship yeah. or, or at least disconnection. There's such yeah. a tremendous difference in how, right. um, you know, how much, how discompo- discombobulating the experience of parenthood is for women versus men. And just biologically, much, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just, you know, just start with the biological. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but but also, you know, and I, it's a whole. I don't want to go off on this tangent about social policy. But if you think about the, the fact that um, paternity leave is not sanctioned, it's not common. If a company mm-hmm. offers paternity leave, the new father may or may not actually take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, we know from the research that father involvement in the care of the baby is critically important for mm-hmm. not just how the couple does, like how mm-hmm. well does this couple do across the transition to parenthood, but also the woman's well-being. So right. so in other words, when men are actively involved in the care of the child, women are less likely to be depressed and mm-hmm. the relationship is less likely to suffer. Mm-hmm. And yet at the social policy level, there is really... Uh, you know, the message pretty loud and clear is dad shouldn't take time off work to be home and involved in the care of the baby. Mm. So, so I think that couples in some ways, you know, there's sort of this great sadness for me that couples are operating against this or they have the cards stacked against them, I guess is the best way right. to put it, that, you know, they're, they may have these ideals and uh, sort of egalitarian standards where they're entering uh-huh. the parenthood thinking we're going to share the duties you know, right. half and half, and yet the sort of societal infrastructure does not support that. Um, right. And so women, you know, this is just, I guess I wanted to talk about it briefly because I feel like it's such a big theme in my book that mm-hmm. that w- when when we become parents, if we're in a heterosexual relationship, we are inevitably going to be doing some comparison of how much has this baby changed my partner's life compared to how much has this baby changed my life and almost invariably there's going to be no contest you know that men sort of carry on relatively unencumbered compared to women Mm -hmm. Um, men are insulated from a lot of the unspoken demands of intensive parenting that Mm -hmm. those demands can be emotionally crippling for women right so those disparities um Mm -hmm. 
like I said, they just are fertile ground for right. resentment and conflict sure. and disconnection. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point about sort of even if you have that egalitarian dynamic at home, that our society isn't isn't really that, especially in America, isn't it hasn't progressed to that level. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Our behaviors are lagging right. far behind our ideals. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For sure. No, that's a really good point. And to acknowledge that, I think, is just helpful to be like, this is hard, and there is, there might be some resentment in, you know, because of that, right. and to work through that. Um, right. I had. It, yeah. Acknowledging it is so helpful. It's mm-hmm. an example of that. I had um, this woman attended a talk that I gave recently about my mm-hmm. book. And when she came to the talk, she had already read the book. And mm-hmm. so she stayed afterwards just to thank me. And she said, I just want mm-hmm. you to know that one of the big things that I was thinking as I was reading the book is maybe I don't need to get a divorce. Mm, wow. and, and then she wow. went on to explain that she had been thinking, you know, prior to understanding some of these gender um, inequities mm-hmm. that are so pervasive, mm-hmm. she she was actually inclined to think that her husband was just sort of uniquely a jerk. Um, wow. But but in, in being able to identify that this is a larger problem, it has right. societal roots, pretty much every woman in a heterosexual relationship is also feeling mm-hmm. some of that same resentment and sort of, you know, right. bewilderment about why her husband is not as taxed by mm-hmm. parenthood as she is that that helped her, mm. it, it helped sort of loosen the grip of, right. the, of these negative feelings toward her husband, and she felt right. really liberated. So that's, so that's yeah. yeah, I just think that's an example of how just when we mm-hmm. understand that a problem exists at a larger Beyond. level for lots of people, even if there's no obvious fix for the problem, right. that can feel so liberating. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's really powerful. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for adding that. I think that's a really important conversation to be having um, and understanding of of the dynamic for sure. You can find Molly on Instagram at Molly Millwood PhD or on Facebook as Molly Millwood. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and make sure to follow us on iTunes and Spotify and on Instagram and Facebook at at interrelate podcast. See you next time. (music) Thank <music> you.